problem is that though assurance is one of the sweetest, richest blessings that a Christian may have, it is at the same time one of the most complex doctrines in all of the Christian faith. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part six of What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ? in seven parts from Pastor Paul Twiss. Why do you think there were so many different responses to the COVID pandemic? Would you agree we acted on what we had told ourselves? And if you've learned one thing about human nature, we can talk ourselves into believing just about anything. Right now, we're talking about healthcare, but what about eternity? Have you ever thought that you might be fooling yourself? Well, for instance, are you basing going to heaven on something that you've talked yourself into believing? Or maybe a book you read, or what some authority said? Or is it based upon what God says about entrance to his home in heaven? In his sixth part of What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ, Pastor Paul Twist wants to make sure that you aren't fooling yourself into eternal separation from Christ. How? Let's find out. 1 John 3, 19 through 24, the word of the Lord reads, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So reads God's word. Well, the title for the message this morning is Heaven on Earth, question mark. Heaven on Earth, question mark. It's a, a title that I took from a book written by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. The title of the book is Heaven on Earth, period. So why the question mark? As I was reading through the book, and as I read statements to the effect of that it is possible for a man to experience now heaven on earth. Thomas Brooks, I think, writing from experience there. As I was reading through the book, it occurred to me that Brooks was a man who knew his fair share of trials. Brooks was a man well acquainted with grief and affliction. It was in 1666, just by way of example, that his church burnt down in the Great Fire of London. Just four years prior, Brooks had been subject to the act of uniformity and what is now referred to as the Great Ejection, when thousands of Puritan ministers were forced out of their churches because they refused to conform to a doctrinal issue placed upon them by the state. Brooks was able to find another church in which to minister, but even there he incurred some measure of persecution, again, by way of that act of uniformity. Brooks was ministering 
in 1665 during the plague, a plague that would claim one quarter of London's population. You can only imagine how sobering it would have been to be a minister of God's word during that time. And then eventually we read in 1676 that Brooks lost his wife, Martha. There's very little written about her or her death except for a few lines by Brooks himself where he notes just how dearly he loved her. Brooks was a man well acquainted with grief. And yet, we read in his book, it is possible for a man to experience something of heaven on earth. And the question arises, how can he write such things? How can he speak of working and walking and resting in paradise now, having known such trials in his earthly life? Or we could rephrase the question and say, what is the it in his sentence, it will bring heaven down? To what is he referring when he says, it will bring heaven down into a man's lap, that all around him should be glory? And the answer is that he is referring to the blessed doctrine of Christian assurance. Brooks's book, Heaven on Earth, is his treatment of the blessed doctrine of Christian assurance. This, of course, is where we find our intersection with our text today. First John is the most extensive treatment we have in the Bible concerning the doctrine of assurance. Looking at the end of the book, John says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that is, to you Christians, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. It was common to reserve your stated aim towards the very end of the letter, and so it is reasonable to infer that this is the purpose of First John. He wants to write to these Christians and to give them assurance. And that single fact affects our interpretation of just about every single verse in this book. John is giving us here a theology of assurance. And though he doesn't use the terms heaven on earth, I think John would agree wholeheartedly with Thomas Brooks that the assured heart is the one that knows something of paradise now. John, at the very beginning of the letter, talks about fullness of joy. It is a joy that arises from knowing that you are belonging to the Lord. He talks in his letter about abiding with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He talks about an intimacy in prayer that the assured heart believes. He talks about the confidence that the assured heart has of Christ's return, that we look forward with eager anticipation, with no ounce of nerves in our heart when we're certain that Christ is mine and I am his. First John is loaded with blessings, all of which in some form are fruits of products of assurance. There is, of course, one problem. The problem is that though assurance is one of the sweetest, richest blessings that a Christian may have, it is at the same time one of the most complex doctrines in all of the Christian faith. It is one of the most difficult doctrines to understand, ultimately because assurance is an issue of self-awareness. We're asking a believer to make an assessment of him or herself before the Lord of where we stand. And though we may think that we are relatively self-aware, the truth is we really are not. 
We really don't know all that's going on in our own hearts. Your heart is a melting pot of emotions, of influences and previous experiences, all of which can combine together to rob you in one way or another of your assurance, your confidence of being saved and in Christ. Brooks acknowledges that in his book, giving many pages to the problem of the hindrances of assurance, and so also does John. In our text this morning, perhaps more so than anywhere else in the letter, John deals with the fact that there are many in his congregation, most likely, who don't know this blessing, whose consciences are fraught for one reason or another. And his antidote, his response, is so simple. It is the same response that John gives from beginning to end in this letter, the path towards assurance is above all things, first and foremost, to take in more of Christ. First John, I think, is one of the most Christologically rich letters in all of the New Testament. Everywhere you look, John is giving us Christ. Why? Because the road to assurance is one that takes in the Savior. Assurance is a product of our faith. So the logic is, if you want to be in that position of assurance, you need to nurture your faith, you need to feed your soul, and you do so by fixing your gaze all the more upon Christ. Secondarily, you exercise the responsibility that we have to love one another. You give your attention to the commands of Scripture, foremost of which in 1 John is the responsibility that we have to love other Christians. And they are the two pillars upon which 1 John is built. Everywhere you look, John is in one way or another exhorting us to look towards Christ and to love the brethren. And regardless of what your previous experiences are, regardless of what the influences have been in your life that might cause a lack of assurance, he said the roadmap is so simple. Take in Christ, love the brethren, and God is faithful over time to move your heart to that position where you may now taste something of heaven on earth. That is the point of the text this morning. Before we give our attention to it, I would just acknowledge that there are most likely some, if not many, here this morning who struggle in this area. Most likely there are some, if not many, who don't enjoy the blessing of assurance. Though you dearly love Christ, And though you are doing your utmost to obey the commands of Scripture and exercise love towards other Christians, you don't know peace in this area. Your conscience is not giving you rest with respect to the question of whether you truly belong to Christ. And the wonderful news is that God wants you to be assured. The wonderful news is that the doctrine of assurance is available to all who believe savingly upon Christ. The doctrine of assurance is available to all, and God desires it for you. God delights in your joy, the joy that comes from assurance. And he has made the path towards it so wonderfully simple. So let's look at the text and see that roadmap. I've divided it into 2, 19 through 22, and then again 23 through 24 asking the question of how we may taste heaven on earth, the first answer John gives is through an assured heart. 
through an assured heart. He says in verse 19, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. The by this actually bears quite a lot of theological weight. By this refers back to what John has just been saying. In particular, again, that responsibility to love one another. But even there, we see that the responsibility is wrapped up and centered upon the love that Christ has shown us. Look at verse 16. By this we know love that he, he being Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the by this brings into view yet again not only the responsibility to love other Christians, but also the object of our faith, namely Christ. There are the two pillars yet again. This is how we move towards a position of assurance by this, looking at Christ and loving the brethren, we shall know that we are of the truth. By this, we shall guide our hearts towards assurance. He says we will reassure our heart before him. That is to say we will find peace. That is to say our hearts will find a resting place when we follow the roadmap. That is to say our hearts will have confidence before God, when we take in Christ and love the brethren. There is a sense in which John could end his letter here. There is a sense in which John has just given us the formula, and he could put down his pen here and we could be done with First John. But he loves his congregation too much to be done here. And so rather than ending, he goes on in verse 20 to now deal with the theologically complex issue of the heart that does not have assurance, the heart that does not have this rest and peace before God. Verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us. Now, John doesn't go into the factors that might result in a nervous conscience, a lack of assurance, but they're worthy of our consideration this morning. Experientially, A person may lack assurance by a number of different avenues. Oftentimes, when somebody's been saved very young, they may struggle in this area. Perhaps you were saved young, and there is no clear turning point that you can indicate in your life, a transition from when you were living in flagrant sin to now striving to honor the Lord. And so there seems to be an apparent lack of evidence, and that may result in a lack of assurance. Perhaps you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church where you were taught assurance is not available. The Roman Catholic Church will teach assurance is not available. To have that teaching ingrained in your mind and then to be here this morning where the preacher is saying God wants you to be assured, that's a difficult corner to turn. It can be difficult to now appropriate that truth to your heart and to your mind. And there are probably many other experiences that we could talk about undergirding those experiences, what is going on theologically. Sinclair Ferguson, in his wonderful book, The Whole Christ, summarizes them helpfully in four ways. He says, number one, we do have a tendency to confuse the works-faith relationship. We have a tendency to allow our hearts to stray towards earning our salvation, even though we may affirm mentally 
concede to the fact that the gospel is all by grace, that we bring nothing to the table, yet our hearts are so prone to seek to earn God's favor. So often we try to work out in some measure our salvation, thinking that our works is what brings pleasure to God, rather than understanding that we have his favor because of the cross. As soon as we make our salvation a works-based issue, we are doomed in relation to our assurance. We will at some point lose our sense of assurance because our works will at some point fail. Secondly, we do tend to be distrusting of God's character. We who gather together and sing praises to the Lord and pray to him and love him have in our hearts an inherent distrust towards God. Introduced in the garden when the serpent approached Eve and said, did God really say, undermining the very integrity of God? And as Eve took of the fruit, so there was introduced into the human heart a distrust of God that continues to this day. So that at some level or another, we struggle to take God at his word, not least when he says, it is finished. Thirdly, we tend to put our justification on the final horizon of salvation history. There is something in the flesh that wants to put that expression and declaration of justification upon the final horizon, as if to say God is still holding back his verdict concerning us, as if to say I am waiting for Jesus to return and then I'll know if I'm accepted before God. And the second you do that, you lose your assurance because you don't know if the verdict will be favorable or not. We refuse to embrace that God has justified the Christian now, fully. He says, accepted the moment of saving faith. And then fourthly, and especially during times where sin has found a foothold in our lives, we tend to distrust the teaching that the bondage that we were enslaved to is now over. We tend to think that those cores of sin have reattached themselves and we are now enslaved yet again, refusing to believe that God has set us free. And though we may still sin in the flesh, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Any of those factors or a combination of them, if found in our heart, though we may not even be aware of them, will rob you of your assurance. How does John reply to the heart that is condemned? Whenever our heart condemns us, he says, God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything, John says. He invokes the sovereignty of God and the omniscience of God. He's saying God is a better judge of your heart than you are. But not only that, notice he says he knows everything. John is saying, not only is it true that God knows the nervous disposition of your heart, God knows the struggle in your mind, God knows the fraught conscience that you have, not only is it true that God is saying he understands the pathway by which you came to saving faith in Christ, though that is true, he ordained that pathway. He knows all of your previous experiences and your influences. It seems to be that that John is casting the net even broader than that. You see, John doesn't say God is greater than our heart and he knows everything about our heart. 
He doesn't say God is greater than our heart and he knows all the inclinations of your heart. He says God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. The point being, God is sovereign over not only your heart, but over the gospel itself. God is bringing into view here the entirety of salvation history and the mechanism that God authored by which men would come to know him, the gospel. And John's reply to the condemning heart is one that is exhorted towards a consideration of these things. Consider the fact that God knows the gospel far better than we do. God understands the means by which you have been saved far better than you do. God sees and knows the righteousness of his son in all of its fullness far better than we do. God sees the cross and he knows just how much of an atonement was wrought on the cross for your sin. And though we may try to consider these things and there is some understanding of them, God knows them in all of their fullness. God sees the blood of his son and he knows that a payment has been made, a final payment for sin such that there is no payment left. God knows though your heart may be tempted to work salvation out, to earn his favor, God understands that his gospel has paid the price, that it is all by grace and there is nothing left to pay. God knows his own character. God knows the, the trustworthiness of his word, which is a reflection of his character. And though there may be a temptation in your heart to distrust God, he knows that he is trustworthy when he says it is finished. It's over. God knows that when he declared you to be justified, you are now justified. However much there may be in your heart a temptation to believe that we're still awaiting some kind of verdict, that you don't know how it's going to play out for you. God knows the gospel. And he knows that when he brings you to saving faith, he says accepted fully, completely now. And there is nothing you can do to diminish that acceptance. And God knows when you are at your lowest ebb and sin is flourishing, God knows that he has shattered the chains of sin and death once and for all, and that they have not reattached themselves to your hands and to your feet. And though you may still sin, you are indeed free, no longer a slave to such things. John invokes the sovereignty and the omniscience of God as an exhortation for us to consider such things, to consider not only the theology of God himself, but the theology of the gospel which he has authored, which has come into effect in your life. And when we are diligent to pursue these things in our minds, to follow the roadmap that he has given us, notice the outworking is a state of assurance. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Do you think you'd have confidence before him in order to enter? I mean, after all, it's only eternity. But notice the final sentence Pastor Paul read in verse 24 of 1 John chapter 3. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Do you have God's Spirit dwelling in you? He is a witness of our salvation. 
If you want to learn more about assurance of your eternal life, come to TimelessTruthToday.org. That's TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts, and there you'll find an abundance of teaching to help you, including earlier parts of this series. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. And with Sunday coming, if you don't have a home church, you're always invited to join us for worship, 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Be sure to join us tomorrow, the conclusion, part seven of our series, What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ? Till then, I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.